Welcome to this week's edition of An Hour of Your Life. I am Kim, and sitting across from me is the handsome Steve. And I am Steve, and every time I play that, Kim smiles. No matter how bad a mood she's in, she smiles. Not in a bad mood. But I started something uh, oh, messing around Lord. with the garage band. I, I think I've about driven her crazy. He so he got a new iPad for Christmas, and there's thank there's, you, Santa. He was playing on GarageBand, and he discovered the mandolin. And he j- this one mandolin line. I he started at eight o'clock at night, and we I finally gave up and was like, I'm going to bed at one in the morning. And he played. This how long? It's maybe five seconds, five ten seconds. It's well, not it's a long. Loop. There's it's like a over and over again from eight p.m. to one a.m. And then he would add instruments, and then he would take instruments out. But always this one mandolin line, and I it like it's like nails on a chalkboard now. So I'm experimenting with uh, with GarageBand, and wow. Technology is awesome. That's all I'm going to say about all this. Well, we hope you had a Merry Christmas. We have a lot to talk about today, so we're not going to take up too much time at the beginning. Uh, But we did hope you had a Merry Christmas. Thanks to everyone who watched our live broadcast um, on Facebook. If you want to find it, it's still on there. Uh, I don't, I I like watching myself even less than I like listening to myself, but we do have some pretty cute sweaters, so I'll just leave that there. Well, today we are taking on... The media, the mm-hmm. role of media, the history of media, and just some fun facts about the media. Are we the media? We're going to discuss that because as we were talking about this, like I asked Kim, I said, what's it take for us to get a press pass? But Theoretically, look, like anybody can be the media, right? Yes. Anybody can be a journalist. Yes. Just Although some people are more is... professional than others. Yes, so there are people more professional than we are. Okay, so let me sum this up real quick. The media is supposed to be the watchdog for the people. The media is founded in the Constitution of the United States. Let me read you the First Amendment very quickly. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof of abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people to peaceably assemble and so on and so forth and redress grievances. But the media is directly written into the Constitution of the United States. Mm -hmm. It is that important to our society. Thomas Jefferson said, quote, Were it left to me to decide whether we should have a government without newspapers or newspapers without a government, I should not hesitate a moment to prefer the latter. Now, sometimes the media gets a bad rep. And people are afraid of the media. Theodore Glazer, professor emeritus, Glasser, I'm sorry, professor emeritus at Stanford, says the media, quote, looks for violations of the moral order, the norms concerning what's right and wrong. But my question uh, to what you just said is, does the media just look for violations or do they create the moral order and the societal norms? Well, we're, we will talk about that when we get down because later on, way down towards the end of the show, we're going to talk about the ethical standards for journalism. Mm. And, you know, I I just had a hard time. Where do we fit this in? And Kim and I talked, and we thought we better get out some of these, um, the the history of it first. It's really interesting. Yeah, it is to me, again. I hope it's interesting to you, too. Take what we say 
Do your research and educate yourself. Yes. This is an educational show. But like, we are a jumping off point. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, we're, not a, we're not the experts. We're not the end all be all. So we are a jumping off point. We just want to stimulate your brain That's and right. make you go out. And we like doing this. Okay. Look. Arguably. (laughs) Yeah, we're real professional there in our... This is... The First Amendment is the most important amendment to maintaining our government and our way of life as we know it. (laughs) I can't. I'm already stumbling with my words. I'm sorry. Would you like me to take over? No, not yet. Let me get this couple of things out here. Look, it's the freedoms of speech, press, assembly, and the right to petition the government and seek redress of grievances is how we keep old Uncle Sam in check. Which I always wondered, like you, and you might know the answer to this and you might not, I don't know, but um, there is, you always see petitions. Uh, There are like moveon.org sends out emails. There's a Tea Party website that sends emails that somehow I got on their list. I don't know how, but... Um, it's, they always send petitions, sign the petition. We have 75,000 signatures. Is there some magical number that if you have enough petitioners for a, a whatever thing, then the government th- has to look at it? No, I don't think so. But I think it was, uh, President Obama that initiated, I, I think it was Obama that initiated this, that if a petition through whatever site, through whitehouse.gov or whatever, right got up to 200,000, then they would officially look into it. But I I think when we talk about redress of grievances, I think typically most people are going to think about write your congressman, write your senator, write letters, or peacefully protest. Yeah. um, I would like to say right up top, um, I have written my local government. uh, Now, all right. I'm I'm going to say something mildly controversial. I don't mean for it to like get anybody up in arms, but when the shooting happened in Dayton over the summer, um, President Trump came, and those of you who are not local may not realize that it w- we were very the city was very divided about whether or not people wanted him to come, and I wrote letters saying please don't come yet. Like I understand the president has every reason to come. Like great, come, but not. Give it a couple weeks and like then come and visit because everything was still too fresh. So I wrote to all of my local legislature and it was like it didn't I didn't hear back. I got form letters back, which is basically what I expected. But it was like six months later. Well, not six months later because it hasn't been six months since the shooting. But it was it was well after everything. had. I mean, several months later. So if you write letters to your local Congress people or whoever, your representatives, don't necessarily expect to hear anything super fast. Okay, so in my experience, I've done this over the course of many years over a couple of issues, and uh, I, I have re- gotten a response back reasonably quickly and in a timely manner. Really? Yes. Hmm. Hmm. I can't explain. Let me get. Let me throw out just a couple fun facts about the First Amendment before we really go into this right now. Your employer, the the First Amendment, the government has to abide by. Your employer doesn't have to abide by the First Amendment. In many states, you can get fired for making statements as a private citizen if your employer finds them <laughs> objectionable. 
Is that are those at 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 will states? Is that what that means? Uh, no, it, it's just just like any anything. Like if you worked at the local grocery store and you were bad mouthing the local grocery store, you don't have. You don't have First Amendment protections to go in there and do that. Right. And we talked about this on one of our earlier episodes. Obviously, you can't go into the crowded theater and yell fire. Now, there's some other things, um, institutions such as insurance, financial services, banking, health care, pharmaceuticals, or education. They do fall under some different rules and don't want to go into that. But if you want to learn more about how they are affected by the First Amendment, there is a website uh, I guess I'll read it. HTTPS, right. blah, blah, blah. <laughs> www.business2community.com slash social hyphen media slash seven hyphen things hyphen the hyphen first hyphen amendment hyphen doesn't hyphen protect hyphen zero one two nine two three four. Hey, I have a great idea. How about you message me that and I'll put it up on our Facebook we'll page. We'll put it up on our Facebook page. But <laughs> you know what? That 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 is only how it applies to those specific services or those specific um branches, not branches, but tracks in the government. Yeah. So let, let's get back on track. Kim, tell me about the history. All right. So um when I was doing the research on history, I have it broken down into print, radio, and television. Um, and then today. So we're going to start way back in 1704, which was when the first continuous printing press and newspaper uh, came about in Boston. Now, that's not to say that that was the first printing press, because that's not true. There had been newspapers and there had been pamphlets and so on and so forth before 1704, but it, they were not continuous. This was not like a daily or, or weekly um, event. It was a one-off here and there. During the Revolution, newspapers were used to inflame anti-British sentiment, and it wasn't long before the party press was created in the form of editorials. We have listeners in Great Britain. There you go. I mean, we are fine with you now. Cousins. Far, like, we're cool now, as long as I, as far as I know. But back in the 1700s, we didn't like you very much. Uh, but anyway, so the party press was created back then um, in, this, in the Revolutionary War because even though... Uh, there were subscriptions and um, people had memberships to these newspapers, basically, and there, there were advertisements. Still didn't pay for... Back then, printing was still very expensive. And so uh, newspa the newspapers that ran positive coverage for one one party or one, one candidate or another, though that party donated to that newspaper. So you got... Sort of the this is the division among, I guess parties and and news has been around for a very very long time, because the political parties help pay for printing costs. Well, let's be clear. We're kind of talking about press and history goes way way back, a mm -hmm. uh, long long way. But so we are specifically talking about the press and media in the United States. Yes. That's why we're yeah, only going to go back. Yeah, this is all America. Yeah. So if you are the listener in Spain or Ireland or whatever, if you're not from America and you don't care. Norway and Sweden. It's cool. We understand. But you, sh you it's still going to be interesting, I think. Can I throw in another fun fact real quick? Sure. International agencies have ranked the United States behind most other Western nations for freedom of the press. Interesting. But ahead but ahead of most Asian, African, and South American countries. I mean, I don't, 
I don't know that that's necessarily a positive, but okay. But I have more on that later. Hey, let me jump in here real quick. In 1798, right after the signing of the Constitution, the Federalist Party was in charge. They, in, they attempted to control criticism with something called the Alien and Sedition Acts. And basically what the Sedition Act did, it banned criticism of Congress or the president, mm. made it a crime. But you talk about Thomas Jefferson, but it didn't ban talking about the vice president. But- that, that was okay. Now, Thomas Jefferson was a non-federalist when, when this was going on, when, he was, um, when the act was passed. So I'm betting this was a political move. What do you think, Kim? Good chance. Thomas Jefferson was, uh, he, wasn't, he was not really a wallflower. He, I admire Thomas Jefferson. He said what he thought. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so going along, uh, penny papers became very popular um, not too long after this, because they were cheap and salacious. They only cost a penny. And in the 1840s, Joseph Pulitzer was the first to create a tabloid-style newspaper called New York World that featured editorial pages, cartoons, pictures, front-page scandal, which is what we all love to hear now. I feel like there's a lot of tabloid journalism just in regular journalism these days. Oh, I want to talk about it at the end. Because scandal sells. Uh, so this was kind of the advent of yellow journalism. There have been studies about that. About scandal, scandal selling? Scandal selling, yes. This there was... are entire um, thesis documents oh, and I'm sure. college classes, if you're a journalism major, about this. I'm sure. Uh, This was the creation of yellow journalism. Now, Steve kind of laughed at me the other day when I was doing my research because I always assumed the worst. I always assumed that yellow journalism was like a racist thing against um, Asians. Like sort of how, uh, uh, like when the Chinese mine workers came over um, and were exploited out West, I thought it had something to do with that, but it's not, not even close. Yellow journalism is called yellow journalism because yellow is a bright color that's used to distract readers from legitimate stories. So the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing um, because the yellow journalism is distracting them. Uh, in 1896, Adolf Ox, O-C-H-S, Ox, Ox, bought the New York Times in an attempt to bring back informational papers that were impartial, accurate, and transparent. This was the beginning of the muckraking era where exposés became popular. Muckraking. This is when exposés became popular, and exposés are some of my favorite kinds of journalism. So this is when you had the Jungle, uh, the Pure Food and Drug Act was passed during this time. I like that book. Yeah, we listened to the Jungle on the way down to Florida one time to go visit your mom. Didn't eat a hamburger the rest of that trip. Yeah, it was. if you haven't read The Jungle, I highly recommend it. It's a good book, but uh, maybe don't read it while you're eating. It does get pretty graphic. Hey, in um, mid-August 1861, four New York City newspapers, the New York Daily News, the Journal of Commerce, the Daybook, and the New York Freeman's Journal were given a presentment by the United States Circuit Court Grand Jury. Now, you might ask, what is a presentment? What is a presentment? I'm glad you asked, Kim. <laughs> a presentment is basically a formal complaint. Ooh. for, And the, the presentment was based on for frequently encouraging the rebels by expressions of sympathy and agreement. Now, we're talking Civil War, Abraham Lincoln here. Mm-hmm. And this began a series of federal prosecutions during the Civil War 
of uh, several U.S. newspapers because they were expressing sympathy for the Southern cause, or they criticized the Lincoln administration. These papers were called peace newspapers, and um, basically what happened with this, the, the, um, the New York Daily News published some articles, basically was used for retributions, and what happened was, for our friends in Maine, the Bangor Democrat in Maine was one of these newspapers that was on the naughty list here, and a raid destroyed the press and set the Bangor Democrat building on fire. Many thought that the federal government did this deed. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Interesting. This is Scandal. Like, this is like the Civil War. There goes War. your tabloid right there. Right. Well, this is... it. it Kind of makes me think of the Civil War version of the 9-11 conspiracy theory. Hey, you know what? Right now, in the political atmosphere that we are in right now, it's it's bad. There's a lot of division. Of lot, it, It's bad. But I don't think... We're all so used to where we are right now. Yeah. You go back to what was going on in the Civil War... And if we would have had social media and 24-hour news, it would have been 10 times as ugly, in my humble opinion, as it it is right now. I mean, the entire country went a civil war over that stuff. I think any time in history, like if you had during the Revolutionary War and not even the Civil War, but just all of the 1800s, especially with the muckraking that happened a few years later, our country is a country of clashes, I think, a lot of the times. Our... I, it, it's not any worse now than it ever has been, in my opinion. It's just that we have more access to it now than we have had ever in any time in history. And it can be spread so quickly. Right. You know, this got so serious that on August 7th, 1861, President Lincoln made it illegal, punishable by death, to um, conduct correspondence with or give intelligence to the enemy, either directly or indirectly. Yeah. So war, wartime, and I'm going to talk a lot about wartime and the press and stuff like when that later. When we get later. to the 40s? Yeah. Yep. Well, even before then. Well, yeah. But um, wartime can really put boundaries on freedom of the press. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's move in a little bit to the radio portion of um, history. Radio news showed up in the 1920s with NBC and CBS. In 1927, the Radio Act created the Federal Radio Commission, which started setting standards, assigning frequencies, and licensing stations. Up until this point, it had just been kind of a free-for-all that wherever you could find room on the frequency, and this is all AM, by the way. The government owns the airwaves. Uh, Most of the shows were entertainment, but as listenership grew, politicians realized what a valuable tool it was, and Warren Harding was the first president to regularly give speeches on the radio. I will mention later, he was also a member of a very important club. Mm. In 1934, the Communications Act ended the FRC and created the FCC, which we know is the Federal Communications Commission, which regulates more than just radio. It also regulates, I mean, now television. Um, it, radi- it regulates some uh, print advertisement, I believe. Um, so the FCC is... is Basically, the organize, the federal organization that says what's okay, what's not okay. You know, George Carlin's seven, is that what it is? Seven deadly words? Or seven whatever. words you seven can't, words say, on you can't say on TV. That comes from the FCC. Uh, Roosevelt was the president, the guy who really harnessed the power of radio with his fireside chats. 
Now, let's get into World War II, unless you want to talk a little bit more about before that. Yeah, let me go back to World War I just a little bit. Okay. In uh, the Espionage Act of 1917 and the Sedition Act of 1918 amended Lincoln's rules, where they imposed restrictions on the press during wartime. And basically what happened here was that if you were found guilty of this, you could be fined $10,000 and up to 20 years imprisonment. So... The, the balance there is how much freedom the press has versus national security. And, you know, when we're, we're talking about people's lives and things like that, the government wants to go ahead and make sure that there are protections in place. Right. And uh, World War II, I would say that we always hear now about the death of newspapers, but I would almost say that the death of newspapers could arguably be traced back to World War II because people wanted up-to-the-minute news on what was going on overseas, and that could really only come through radio. And government censorship of the news was big time in World War II also, just like in the Civil War. And the government placed, again, exceptions on the First Amendment by not allowing reporting on troop movements and so on and so forth. But whereas now, I th- I think, and I'm really curious about. I wish that we knew somebody in the. I'm going to I'm going to cover a lot about the uh, the military aspect and the press. Yeah, because I think that you know je- then the press was okay with it. I think it was sort of a gentleman's agreement, as it were, that okay, we're not going to put our troops in danger. But now I wonder if if that's still true. I mean, I we've will, had I will this cover war. That. I will cover that in, okay, in good. depth. Yep. Because we've had this war going on for so long um, that I feel like it would still be true, but then at the same time, we value truth and knowledge above all else. But uh, let's see. Well, um, so, okay, back to radio. Prior to World War II, there was only AM, but after the war, FM became popular for its clarity. And... Uh, in the we're gonna I'm gonna jump way ahead to the 1980s. So, is there any period that you want to cover before the 1980s? Well, I, I guess so. Um, Congress in 1921, Congress repealed those laws that we were just talking about. Okay. Now there are a lot of court cases that affect this. Probably it, as we go through here, it, it's hard to stay on a timeline because. There's a case here, Brandenburg versus Ohio in 1969, revised the clear and present danger test. So basically, the the journalist had to abide by, and what the government put down was, if there is a clear and present danger, then they could start restricting First Amendment rights. So in 1969, it was amended to a significantly less restrictive imminent lawless action test. So what does it, that mean? I'm glad you asked. So basically, the imminent lawless action is roughly, think about that as the um, yelling fire in a crowded theater. Oh, okay. It, there doesn't have to be the clear and present danger, but... If it could put people in danger, like you just don't don't go out of your way to make an yes. already wartime danger even yeah, so more what, dangerous. So when we say less was, Less restrictive. I don't think it means less restrictive on the press. It means less restrictive. No, if anything, it's more restrictive. Yeah, it's just how you uh, place that less restrictive. Gotcha. Uh, So 
in the 1980s, talk radio became very popular locally. And then in the 90s, it took off nationally. And that's when you have um, Rush Limbaugh was big. Howard Stern was huge back in the 90s. Uh, And then in 1990, Sirius began to campaign FCC for the approval of satellite radio. And back then there was Sirius and XM. There were two different satellite radio stations and uh, they were, had both been approved by 2001 for broadcasting. Now they, I, Sirius bought out XM. So it's Sirius XM now. Now there's only one as far as I know. But um, most satellite stations are exempt from FCC regulations which I thought was interesting. And I'm guessing it's probably because they're a subscription service. Probably. So they don't have to necessarily follow the same rules as what public radio has to follow. Although when they do that free trial once a year or twice a year, whatever it is, I wonder if they do. I don't know. So moving forward to television. So we had the print, printed press, and then we have radio, and now we're moving forward into TV the first official broadcast on television was FDR's speech at the 1939 World's Fair. That was the first? First one. Yeah. Wait, say that again. First official broadcast was at the 1939 World's Fair. Well. When Roosevelt opened it. Okay. Uh, coverage of World War II increased television purchases because people wanted, again, up-to-the-minute news By the 1950s, advertisers had started buying space on TV, which had the cost of televisions had dropped considerably, so a lot more families had them and had TVs in their home. The first TV news show was Edward R. Murrow's See It Now in 1951. And TV really changed politics for a lot of people because it was the first time that politicians could be readily seen I mean, you saw them in photos, and and if you were lucky when they were coming to your town or whatever, you could go see them. But you could watch them uh, kind of live and in person, for lack of a better way of putting it. Uh, and there wasn't really cable, so um, there this was. This is where President or Ednet, not at that time, but candidate Nixon really got into. Yes. Well, when I say in trouble, he kind of lost his election because yeah, he didn't understand the yes, power of television. Yeah. Even in so, the old fuzzy black and white, he looked yes. bad on TV. TV could allow people to see people or politicians for the first time. The first presidential TV ads were Eisenhower and Adlai Stevenson in the early 1950s. And, of course, we know Eisenhower won that. There was the famous Nixon-Kennedy debate in 1960, which Kennedy easily won because he was young and vital and Nixon was old and sweaty and... Like, he just looked better. He looked frumpy. Better. He looked he, frumpy. I've Kennedy seen just looked better. And the 1960s to the 1990s was known as the golden age of presidential television because, like I said, there wasn't really cable, so you had a captive audience of network viewers. That's, Three channels, if four if you want to count PBS. And that's all they show. I mean, PBS, I don't know if PBS showed the the debates and stuff, but do you realize that's all they, that was on. Do you realize you had to get up off the couch or out of your chair to go over and change the channel? What? Yeah. But, but you only had three channels, ABC, NBC, and CBS. Yep. And PBS. Yeah. And PBS always showed British stuff. Yeah. And Sesame Street and stuff like that. Mr. Rogers. God rest his soul. Today, there is the availability of constant media via the 24-hour news cycle. um, And there is a term called citizen journalism, 
which has made people... This is what has made people suspicious of the news. Can I interject right here that a key decision in 1972, no less, before we ever heard of social media and things like that, opened the door to social media. Freedom of the press was described in a Brandsburg versus Hayes case that said, basically, as a fundamental personal right not confined to newspapers and periodicals. Mm. And so that ruling back in 1972, we talked about everyone can be a journalist now. Yeah, that's true. And the thing that people have to remember, uh, all of you who are listening who might be younger, aspiring politicians, the Internet is forever. You put something out on the Internet... It's, it's there forever, and somebody's going to find it. And cell phones have cameras, and don't put anything in writing. You know what's even more weird about this? What's that? In 1938, uh, Chief Justice uh, Charles Hughes defined the press as every sort, and this has a lot of implication for what we're about to really to get heavy into, mm-hmm. every sort of publication which affords a vehicle of information and opinion this right has been extended to newspapers, books, plays, movies, and now video games as further uh, challenges have gone up to the Supreme Court. Yep. Uh, as a result of citizen journalism, which is uh, what I didn't know that's what it was called, but that's what it's called. Basically, people with cameras and um, YouTubers, people putting stuff on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all of the Reddit, like all of the things. I think that as a result of that, leaders are more accountable, but quote-unquote news has never been more biased. I don't think, because you have that dissemination of information instantaneously, we'll see. and th- everybody has their own opinion, and everybody is ha- happily objects to everything and inserts their opinion, and there's there's constant discourse, which is not a bad thing. Discourse is not a bad thing, but like Unless we it's say, between me and you. Uh, like we say, do your research and educate yourself because I think there is a lot more bias now than there ever was because people are not educating themselves. They're just talking to talk to be heard. Yeah, I, I can agree with that. Do you, talk, you, do you know what I mean? like what like, we're doing I... right now, talking to be heard. But, <laughs> no, but, but we're not really putting out... Like, I don't think we're really putting out too many opinions. No, we, we edit those out. <laughs> yeah, we, we do a little bit, but but we always, again, a lost hour at gmail.com. Please, if you disagree with, I tend to do it more than Steve does. If you tend, if you disagree with anything that we say, opinion wise, please write us. Oh, uh, I'm going to be full of opinion at the end of this. Oh, all right. There oh, you yeah. go. Yeah, right, yeah, cool. yeah, yeah. So, there, there, a lot of rulings about how you can be made liable by doing this. So be careful. Just because you're reporting something, you think it's you know important to be heard and to be seen, you can still be sued for libel and if it's slander. out there. And yeah. slander. So you got to be careful. And that's why, when let me just use the term real journalist. They go to school and they learn how to do this. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I we see all the time on uh, YouTube people going up and sticking cameras in people's faces. First off, not a smart idea. Yeah, so, that's know. borderline assault. Yeah, and and I in mean, some it, cases, it actually might be assault. But that's not to say that you can't record things, but do it in a smart way 
at a safe distance. You know, we know what comes to mind right now when I think of this one. What's that? Rodney King. Oh, we're going to talk about Rodney King. Okay. Yep. Hopefully, if we have time. But you know, when it comes to politics, I'm 100% in favor of the press keeping track of politicians. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, because us common, everyday, normal citizens, we don't have the capability to do this, except what we see on the news. Unless they are working something like national security, everything, I, I personally believe that everything they should do, everything that a politician does, should be done in the open. I mean, like sunshine laws. Any type of law or discussion should be open. No closed doors, panels, or hearings. You know, right now here in our local um, oh, in our local yeah. area, there's a local school district that's being sued. I would like to think that this is innocent, but I don't know. I haven't researched it enough to know. Basically, the premise is somebody is suing the school district because there was a levy that was coming up with a ballot, and they... The, the board was coordinating their agendas through text. Yes. And I, they are being sued because this yes. was not done in the public and open. Now, is that going too far? Well, I don't know exactly what coordinating their agendas means. It could mean, hey, is everybody's schedule open on this day at this time? Can we do it on this day? And then they put out the press thing saying there's going to be a board meeting on this day. Yeah, I don't know it enough about It could be something it. as simple as that, or it could be... Uh, we're going to do this and we're going to talk about this. And they're not putting that out there that they're going to talk about these things. I don't yeah, know. I, mean, I, I when, when I say that, I don't. I, I'd I, like I to think, think it's they, innocent, but we don't I think know. They, I think they could like make their agenda. Yeah. You know, in public without inviting the whole population in just to make the agenda. But if any decisions or right. anything like that, yeah, it needs to be open. I, in yeah. The public. I don't I, think I would have a problem with, hey, is everybody everybody free on this day to do a board meeting and this at this what time. topics do you want to discuss i don't know i don't know and that then lawsuit, they put it out yeah. i i would be okay with that but i don't yeah okay anyway so, moving on yeah so i mean just be careful use your camera report do what you see out there because responsibly do it responsibly you know just don't throw that camera up in somebody's face or you know throw it up in a cop's face yeah where you're likely to get in trouble. Yeah. Can I talk about some influential stories and then I'll turn it over to Absolutely. you? Absolutely. We'll, okay. So I have a little bit of a, I have a kind of a timeline of some influential stories throughout history. The Federalist Papers in 1786 to 1800 attempted to explain and ratify the Constitution. Um, some of you probably, this is one of the biggest scandals, I think, in American history, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. I asked Steve about it the other day, and he had never heard of it. Nope. March 25th, 1911. Uh, See, I wasn't born, so I didn't <laughs> hear about it. The Triangle Shirtwaist Factory was back in, uh, you know, during kind of the boom time of immigration, when there were not a lot of safety laws or child labor laws. A factory caught fire and a lot of women and children died because they were unable to exit the building. And as the result of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory and the reporting on the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, a lot of those uh, safety labor laws came into being. Uh, one of the other more famous... Actually, I learned a little bit about this one. The War of the Worlds on October 30th, 1938. If you're not familiar with this, The War of the Worlds is an H.G. Wells story. And... It was broadcast on the radio, but it was broadcast as an actual news story. It was a Halloween sort of prank. It was broadcast as an actual news story. It wasn't story. intended to be a prank. It was just 
you know, back in the day, they would yeah. tell stories on TV and or on yeah, radio. Yeah, so it yeah, wasn't it was, even I mean, prank. not even a prank, but it was a Halloween thing. And so it was broadcast as if it were an actual news story. And nowadays we hear it's kind of famous for millions of people freaked out because they thought we were being invaded by aliens. But that's I actually have, not true. I have actually listened to that original broadcast. Oh, I would love to you listen can find to that it. sometime. It's out there. Um, that's actually not true. Our, our, what we're kind of told about millions It's not true of, that I listened to that? No, it's not true that thousands and millions of people freaked out. There were actually... There were suicides. I don't know about that. Yes, but there were. It was the, like the number of people that actually listened to it. I think I read somewhere that it was only, it was less than 10% of the people that they, that had been listening to the radio that night, listened to that broadcast. So the numbers that actually listened were probably only in the thousands. And of the thousands that listened, the number of people that actually took it seriously and thought that we were being invaded by aliens was much smaller than what we hear today. Um, Let's see. In the 1950s, various civil rights stories were uh, reported, including the murder of Emmett Till on August 28th, 1955. I'm going to really say this guy's name wrong, but Thick Kwong Duke's duck suicide on June 11th, 1963. He was a Buddhist monk and you can find pictures of this all over the internet. He basically uh, sat down in the middle of the street and set himself on fire to protest the Vietnam war and committed suicide. And um, newspapers all around the world ran coverage of that as a Vietnam war protest. A huge one that, that you were alive for, July 20th, 1969. Do you remember that day? I sure do. What was that? That's the day they walked on the moon. That's the day they walked on the moon. That was a big deal. May 4th, 1970, the Kent State murders. Some, some people say they didn't. Well, I say they did. The Kent State murders. Would you like to give a brief synopsis of that for some of our younger listeners that don't know kind of the story behind it? Okay. So basically... A lot of civil unrest about the Vietnam War, which was not a popular war. And across the country, there were protests, especially on college campuses in Washington, D.C. and our major cities. It, a lot of civil unrest. And that's why you know, when, when we talk about how bad things are now, you don't have to go back too far in yeah. history to see what was really happening. If you want to talk about violence and about stuff... It was happening back in the 60s and in 70s. But basically what happened with at Kent State, there was a protest on the campus. The Ohio National Guard was out there, and no one knows for sure. There was a lot of speculation, but the, the shots were fired, and four, four students were killed. And once shots were fired, then the Ohio National Guard opened up because they didn't know what was they just heard a gunshot, and they they fired and returned fire. Yep, reported so, very widely, a uh, subject of song, even, um, For Dead in Ohio. I'm sure you guys have heard that song. Uh, 1972, June 17th, to be precise, was when Nixon, President Nixon hired someone to break into the Democratic National Convention headquarters and all I can think steal of is, stuff. All I can think of is Forrest Gump. <laughs> yeah, I know. When I was looking this up, I was like, mm-hmm. Uh, that happened on June 17, 1972, and then Nixon, in the midst of scandal, resigned on August 9, 1974. He was our first impeachment. So this is where the press 
perfect perfect example of how the press is the watchdog for the nation. Absolutely. Uh, no, uh, November 18th, 1978, one, a very, um, the, the largest mass murder in American history, uh, that was Jonestown. Uh, those of you who know Jim Jones and his poisoned flavor aid, it was not Kool-Aid, it was poisoned flavor aid that uh, thousands, of, I, was it thousands? I think it was maybe 900, something like that, people died. I actually had a sergeant that worked for me when I was stationed at Fort Riley, Kansas, that... Um, was on the detail that went down there. Oh, really? With the congressman? And, or no, after? No, after. And, oh, okay. And cleaned up the bodies and wow. shipped the bodies home. Yep. I can imagine that was incredibly difficult. Um, a, a big date that not a lot of people realize, June 1st, 1980, was a revolutionary date in... Why are you looking at me like that? I was just... Doing some mental math. Go ahead. June 1st, 1980 was actually a revolutionary date for the press. That was the day that Ted Turner founded CNN. So CNN, of course, stands for Cable News Network, and it was the first 24-hour news cycle started back in 1980. So it's been around a lot longer than I realized. That revolution, to me, that revolutionized news and how news is reported. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that to me, that almost has as much impact as the microchip. You know, we've done a few things, like what's been the most important discovery. And I yeah. think it's, to me, it would have to be the microchip. That has just changed the I, entire I world. I would agree. I would agree. Uh, let's see. On August 20th, 1985, Iran-Contra. So the, the basic gist of the story, it's much more complicated than what I'm going to say here. So research it if you want to know. But basically, the U.S. government was caught providing weapons to overthrow and destabilize other governments. And there's much more to it than that. So look up Iran-Contra. That was August 20th, 1985. um, Had had tons of press coverage. Uh, Another set, one of those things that was... Let me just interject in here. This is where I think the press gets a bad name because it, like Iran-Contra, that turned into a very political mm-hmm. episode right there. And if you were pro-Reagan, you were completely against it. If you were against Reagan, it was, look at the press doing their job. And I think all in all, it, it's these are prime examples of how the press really is doing what they're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. They keep tabs, keep checks. Now, sometimes how they get their information through leaks and stuff like that may be questionable. But and you know what? That might just be... That's how the game is played, and and that's how it's done. So, you know, sometimes something works out, it's for you politically, Mm -hmm. and then you're all for it, and sometimes it happens, and it's not on your side, and you're not against it. Sometimes it starts out one way and ends up another way, sort of like what's going on now, where we have President Trump is being investigated by one thing, and then you find out that the Bidens did something else, and like then just it's a big mess with everybody involved. And this is where, turn the press loose, because... They're all bad. (laughs) I'm not going to go that far, because... You know what I mean. I know what you mean, but turn the press loose... You show me an honest politician, and I'll show you a unicorn. Okay. <laughs> okay. Anyway, wait, wait. so... Oh, sorry. Okay, so, I thought you were done. No, 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 no. So, Ricardo Puglisi, and he is from the University of Brussels, and a guy named James M. Snyder, Jr., 
who is with the um, Department of Political Science and Economics at good old Massachusetts Institute of Technology, says, we find that Democratic-leaning newspapers, i.e. those with a higher propensity to endorse Democratic candidates in elections, give relatively more coverage to scandals involving Republican politicians than scandals involving Democrat politicians, while Republican-leaning newspapers tend to do the opposite. Okay, so it takes takes MIT to figure this out. (laughs) But I think this is where the genius of our founding fathers added this in with the anticipation that there would be journalists with left-leaning and both with right-leaning... Ideologues that will, is that the right word I'm wanting, Kim? Ideologies. Ideologies mm-hmm. that will help keep a check and balance Absolutely. on our three branches of government. So I, I, th- I think it's genius what they did and how agree. they set us up. But the press is not just politics. No, it isn't. Uh, another example of sort of a famous press incident happened on January 28th, 1986 with the Challenger explosion. So Krista McAuliffe, who was a teacher, and I believe there were some other civilians that went up on there too, not just astronauts. Um, I think she was the only civilian. Oh, on was that she? Flight, yeah. Okay, she was a teacher, and they broadcast the Challenger uh, launch live because it was the first civilian, I believe, that went up into space, and so it was this big deal. And the shuttle exploded there live on television, and everyone watched. I mean, there there was no, there was no way anybody could survive any of that. Um, so that was big. Uh, the Berlin Wall, the fall of the Berlin Wall, November 9th, 1989, as well as Reagan's speech beforehand. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I'm not sure the date of that, but that's you see that over and over again. Um, Especially the, if you visit the museum at Checkpoint Charlie. Which is really cool. If you are ever happen it to be... It plays on the loop. Yeah, if you ever happen to be in Berlin, uh, I would recommend going to the Berlin Wall Museum. Well, it's like these guys said. I mean, I'm sorry. It's like you're saying right now that Things such as crime or the state of the economy, the citizens can compare that with with what they see and by the news mm-hmm. being provided. But when it gets into things like foreign affairs, the media, they really are the only source of information available to most of the public. Which brings me to August 2nd, 1990 to February 28th, 1991, which is a time perhaps near and dear to your heart, maybe not dear to your heart, but that would be the Gulf War. That was Steve's war that he served in. And really the first fully televised war, because remember, we had CNN by this time. Um, I don't know. I don't think Fox knew. Yeah. 1990, 1991. I don't know if Fox News was around then or not, but I know CNN definitely was, had been around for a decade. And I remember you could pretty much watch 24-hour coverage of... of, um, correspondence covering the war. Maybe not the maybe not what was going on exactly, but you could watch talking heads all day long. And we I remember watching it on TV, like watching rockets go off and stuff. Um it was it was a kind of a big deal. And then uh Steve mentioned earlier, March 4th, 1991, Rodney King, which was in my mind the beginning of like real what we think of as citizen journalism right now, Rodney King was a black man who had been, I don't, I'm, I apologize. I don't know the full story. I don't remember the full story, but I know he was stopped by the police for whatever reason was removed from his vehicle. He and got his butt kicked. Was beaten very severely by the police. It was caught on a civilian Some- camera 
and released to all of the news stations, and it sparked nationwide riots, especially in L.A. and the you know in yeah, Southern I mean, California Los area. Burned, I think for seven or oh eight days. Oh my gosh, riots and looting, and but it was it was across the country, and uh, it it was a it it really um, led to I believe it led to some lawsuits and some uh, some you know some of those um, legal ramifications that we talked about earlier. Uh, one of my, this is, it's not funny, but the worst friend, one of the worst friends in American history, Whitewater, March 8th, 1992. <laughs> so the Whitewater scandal basically <laughs> insinuated that Bill and Hillary Clinton had traded political favors for a good deal on this, real estate. This now, is like journalism <laughs> algebra. A squared plus B squared equals C squared really on this is. one. So, okay, Try to follow so, this story. So the Whitewater, the Whitewater scandal basically started out, the Clintons traded political favors for a good deal on real estate. Okay. Bad, but, but it could be worse. And then it got worse. Oh, yeah. There's a lady. So there's a woman by the name of Linda Tripp, who I think was a secretary in the White House. She contacted Ken Starr, who was the independent counsel for the Whitewater real estate deal. And she said, I have these tapes that you might be interested in. Basically, what had happened, this a lady by the name of Monica Lewinsky had been an intern in the White House and had been carrying on an affair with President Bill Clinton. She was friends with Linda Tripp and confided in, in Linda that she was having this affair, that she was in love with the president, so on and so forth. And mm -hmm. Linda hid, uh, like, hid microphones and stuff in the Oval Office, in the White House. I don't know how she gained access to all of these areas, but she taped them, taped part of their affair, uh, and gave it to ind the independent counsel, Ken Starr, uh, giving her basically like she was Monica Lewinsky's friend and she totally stabbed her in the back. I don't know moral, what her motivation was. Moral but. of this story is if you want something to be a secret, <laughs> you don't tell anybody. So, but, but that was the beginning of the end, I guess for Bill Clinton that eventually led to, well, no, it wasn't the end of it. No, I mean, he's still, I mean, he's he was, still he was impeached. He and yeah, he, he was our second, second ever, second ever impeachment. But unlike, um, Nixon, he did finish out his second term, but he was a laughing stock there for a while. And he is still the butt of many, 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 many jokes, um, about, about, uh, yeah. Okay. Well, we'll just leave it at that. Okay. So. Um, and then Matthew Shepard in October 7th, 1998, Matthew Shepard's death um, was also kind of significant uh, as far as hate crime legislation. He was a gay man who was dragged to death simply for being gay. And he was really the first ha modern hate crime. Um, also Columbine, September, April 20th, 1999. Wouldn't you say modern hate crime? Hate crimes have been going oh, on forever. This absolutely. is when the government classified yes, them as yes, hate crimes. Yes, okay. yes, Um, Columbine, April 20th, 1999, uh, sort of in my mind, at least one of the first televised, um, press covered school shootings. And of course, September 11th, 2001, where we watched live as our country was attacked by terrorists and which has led to a war that has been going on for like what 20 At least years 18 years now yep okay well okay you know that's a good segue into how i'm going to proceed from here 
the press and the military. There has always been a love-hate relationship between the press and the military. At the upper levels, the Pentagon, they want the balance of power or the balance of national security. They view it at that level as protection of tactical plans and security at down at the operation level. They don't want secrets to get out no. and people to get yeah, get hurt I mean, or yeah. die because of this. So during Desert Storm during 1991, Iraqi Saddam Hussein permitted only one foreign journalist to remain in Baghdad, and that guy was CNN's Peter Arnett. Now, they, I, I guess it was a good thing that they allowed him to do this, but Peter took a lot of uh, hate mail because he had to follow the Iraqi censorship. So yeah. es- essentially, the Iraqis only showed him the baby milk factory getting bombed or the hospital getting bombed, and he wasn't allowed to roam back and forth. But they still had a reporter there that you could, when I say see it from their side, I, I'm, I'm not going to be able to explain this well here, but from the Iraqi side, things you would yeah, not see. I don't remember if watching it was, a lot from the Iraqi yeah. side. I remember watching from behind our lines yeah. a and, lot of the time. But Peter Arnett later said, from the beginning... I accepted the constraints that the Iraqis laid down. And so, like I said, it, there was a lot of propaganda provided by the Iraqis. Most of Arnett's stories focused on the bombing of civilian areas and the suffering of Iraqi people. Now, I would imagine that our folks were able to gather some intelligence yeah. just by watching. And that's what I mean by we had someone on the other side. And whether he intended to or not, which is why the the Pentagon wants so much control over the press because you could just inadvertently show something in a camera that could be valuable to the enemy. Now that sounds... And you don't even realize that what you're showing is valuable. Yeah. And that sounds, you know, put put the uh, the tin foil on my hat or on my head and make me a tin foil hat conspiracy theory stuff. But folks, that it really does happen That's like that. That's super realistic. Yeah. I mean, yeah. from, from a, a veteran that has been there, like... You don't know. I wouldn't think that there would be a lot of just like random papers and stuff lying about that have troop movements or whatever. But you never even even you might have like a a piece of mail or something that's laying on the table and somebody the wrong person sees your address and name. And I mean, that's far fetched, but it's possible. Loose lips sink ships. Absolutely. There are foreign agents that watch the pizza delivery guys when they see a lot of pizzas going to the Pentagon they know something's up because yeah. people are staying late and they're working. So you can get a lot of little intelligence here and there across the whole front can add up and put together a whole big picture. So yep. at this same time, hundreds of American reporters were sent to Saudi Arabia, and they had to follow the rules of the U.S. military. Now, of course, the U.S. wanted to control the information that was more favorable to the U.S. I don't think that's a big surprise no. that that happened. Uh, during the Spanish-American War of 1898, it, reporters during that time were very, very pro-military, and they just reported basically, you know, they were like, hoo, hoo, rah, right, rah, rah, right. look what the military did. Teddy Roosevelt just ran up San Juan Hill and <laughs> all that good stuff. During World War One, journalists were considered, um, they, they looked at themselves as a part of the war effort, and I think we touched on this last week on our Christmas special. They, they wanted to report... The patriotism was there, and they wanted to report what was going on with the military. That model of press and military and the cooperation continued on through World War II. But starting with the Korean War and then into Vietnam, the press took increasingly independent and critical view of the military. So during Vietnam, 
you had more than 2,000 accredited reporters just roaming through Vietnam. They, they were permitted to roam freely. Uh, they could interview in, uh, just a common, ordinary soldier. And this allowed them to give a completely different picture of the war than what was being officially by the Pentagon. And So let me ask you then, do you think that if, if the reins had been tightened up a little bit more on them, that we would have had, the soldiers coming home from Vietnam would have had a different greeting? I don't know. I think just the whole, I mean, you have to look at, I think, everything that was going on in the United States. You had all the, the civil rights movements going on. It was a lot of transition. And Vietnam definitely was a part of that. And there are, according to what we've read and what I see, the media played a big role in making the Vietnam War unpopular. Now, that's kind of me throwing it out there on a statement because people say, yeah, it was a bad war and blah, 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 blah. But As somebody that didn't live through Vietnam, it's so strange. That's a strange concept to me because I feel like the opposite is true now. That we are so, you know, we have wounded warriors and support the troops and so on and so forth. Desert Even Storm 20 years that. in, like Des- it's... Desert Storm changed that. Yeah. Um, well, Desert Storm was such a decisive victory that... There were a only a few inc- instances of news stories endangering U.S. troops or operations. So the press did, they maintained their scruples, but they were just trying to report. Yeah. That's that gentleman's agreement that we talked about yeah. earlier. But after it was all over, some Pentagon officials resolved to restrict the coverage, the press coverage in future American wars. In 1983, the Pentagon barred all journalists from the initial invasion of Granada. Then in 1989, when uh, Panama was invaded, the Pentagon selected a dozen or so reporters to cover the invasion of Panama, but they were restricted to an airport in Panama until all, nearly all the fighting was ended. So what happened then, they kept working. By this time, the military started getting public affairs officers, and the military knew it's, it's good to work with reporters because the press isn't really our enemy, and so they started working with them. And during Desert Storm, they came up with policy number one, which was press pools. When U.S. military yeah. units went to Saudi Arabia in the fall of 1990, about 1,000 journalists eventually caught up with them and, and were deployed around the area. But the Pentagon set the rules for the press. It authorized about a dozen pools of up to 18 reporters each to visit U.S. military units out in the field. The news organizations were allowed to select reporters for each pool, and they, the military provided escorts to send them out into the field. Now, I saw this with reporters in... Were they distracting? No. I mean, they, they pretty much did their thing. And is it, that an MOS? For, yeah, there like are public. Military, yeah, there are public, oh, public affairs. There officer? are public affairs uh, specialists and public affairs officers that do all this, like hmm. journalists. I have a good friend who was a reporter back when he was a young sergeant on Armed Forces Network in Germany. Oh yeah. Yeah, I'd like to get John on the show one day. John's a good friend of mine. The pool reporters distributed their news and they dispatched their news back to their news organization. So you know, now we had the satellite cell phones and stuff like that. And they were able to uh, basically get the reports back. The Pentagon accredited all American journalists and required them to observe the the following rules, battlefield rules, while they were out there. No reporter could visit 
any U.S. military unit or travel outside of Dharan or Riyadh except in a press pool. No pool was permitted in the field without an escort, usually a U.S. military public affairs officer, and no interviews of U.S. military personnel were permitted without an escort. That seems so, reasonable. Yeah. I, it's for the safety of everybody. It's for their safety, too. It was for their safety, too. All pools dispatches uh, must first pass through the military security review system. Basically, the PAOs at pool locations reviewed all the dispatches and could delete or change any military-sensitive information. So it was censored before the news went out. Um, but probably report, not super highly censored. Probably not, because I, they, think I think so. they were out in the field. They were... Probably understood the rules, but it was reviewed. Uh, Reporters could appeal any censorship to the military pool coordinating office in Dharan and then onto the Pentagon. And if they didn't follow the rules, they could be arrested, detained, and have their press credentials revoked and expelled from the combat zone. Mm. Nobody wants that. No, nobody wants to do that. The Pentagon explained these rules protected American troops and military operations and, like you said, the journalists themselves. A guy named Rear Admiral John Bitoff said... There is a clear and present danger in today's instant communications age, which may put our troops at risk. And it's like we were talking about. Our enemies are watching CNN. Most news organizations and journalists complied with the Pentagon's pool and review system. And the Pentagon heard many complaints, not about outright censors, not about outright censorship, though, but about the military's strict control of the press. Um, reporters protested that escorts intimidated soldiers being interviewed and sometimes even speaking for them. Now, I can imagine this happening, that you know, mm. they, they go out there and the news reporter wants to interview the, the specialist or the private, mm-hmm. and then the, the sergeant or the captain or the major or the colonel will step in and wants to do the interview to be seen back home. So I can... That, or I can also picture, like, I've seen some of your home videos from Iraq where, like, in your downtime where there's nothing going on, like, you're playing volleyball in the middle of the desert, and, like, I can imagine how... We played volleyball for, like, 30 minutes. Oh, well, you have a video of it, but see, there you go. Like, that, I can see how that could... But but that's what I'm saying. Like, that could be manipulated by the press, by whomever, by, you know what I mean? Like, in one way or another. Yeah, I can see how you could. Like, we're not doing anything. We have we're winning it so well that we're playing volleyball in the middle of the desert. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Or so I can understand. So, the media also objected when the military kept pool reporters from visiting scenes where Americans have been killed. Now, that's you know, I re- I remember when the pictures from Tarawa were shown and they showed American bodies during World War II washed up on the beach. Mm. Not good stuff for no. the American, especially if you want to keep. You know, the yeah, and if you haven't been notified of yeah a death yet, and you see one of your people, yeah, I mean, and there's all sorts of rules now that if a soldier is killed, how that is handled. There is entire regulations about how that is all dealt with for official for notifications. Mm-hmm. So soon after the Pentagon put their press their press review into operation, some news organizations filed a lawsuit charging that the military was violating their First Amendment guarantee of freedom, of freedom of the press. They argued that a free press should have access to a war zone because the people have a right to know what is happening. But in previous cases, the Supreme Court has refused to allow the press access to prisons 
but has granted the press a right to cover trials. So I think that's kind of where that decision went to. The, the right of access to a war zone has never been decided by the court. During the war, a few reporters called unilaterals broke away from the military's press pool and they took out across the desert all on their own. They used their cell phones, probably at that time satellite phones, mm-hmm. and filed um, uncensored reports. Now, mm. yeah, but there is no indications that any of these reports were more critical than what their press or what their pool report would have been. It they just basically they just wanted to be they they the reports children. often seem more realistic because the independent journalists usually reach battle scenes before the pool reporters did. Mm. So th- I don't think there were any known cases where they they still followed the rules. They just went out on their own. They didn't report on stuff that they shouldn't report on. Yeah, and they just they just went on their own. But some unilaterals were arrested, detained and sent back to Dahran by the military authorities. They said they were going to do it. But many managed to elude discovery Uh-oh. with the help of American soldiers and officers. So according to the military, control is necessary, especially in this age of rapid communication. Unlike during World War II and Vietnam, the press can now broadcast directly from the battlefield. Within seconds, the whole world can see... What's going on to include the enemy? They can see the report. So without controls, a reporter could, like yeah. we just said, can unintentionally compromise U.S. forces. The military looks at this. It's control. It's it's a matter of life and death. And so they look at it very seriously. And that's why they try to put these controls on there and do this. But for the most part, Americans supported the military's control of the press during the Gulf War. So where do we draw the line on this? Does the right of the people back home outweigh a soldier's safety? Does the public have the right or the need to know operational plans? Can we count on journalists to be responsible? Some probably would, but in today's world, I, there are some that won't. I mean, these yeah. these are the people that go out and shove the camera right in someone's face yep. just to whatever. But I think most probably would be when they realize the responsibility that they have. Policy number two, and this was proposed by the journalist after the war, and this sounds pretty reasonable, it's, they, came, they had a committee representing most of the nation's major news media, and they issued this statement that independent and uncensored reporting should be the principal means of coverage for all future wars and military operations, that the report also proposed some battlefield rules, including the following. The Pentagon should accredit independent journalists who must observe a clear set of military security guidelines that protect U.S. forces and their operations. Violators of these guidelines will be expelled from the combat zone. Okay, probably a good rule. Yeah. Uh, press pools should only be used during the first two to 36 hours of any major military operation. Reporters should have access to all major military units. The military should not monitor or interfere with press interviews or any part of the reporting process. Written dispatches and pictures from the field should not be subject to military security review. Mm, that eh, I disagree with. Yeah, they, they probably won't get away with that one. The press thinks these rules would ensure that the freedom, their freedom to operate and offer security to our military forces. The military favors press rules similar to the, the press rules number one. Yeah. Now let's talk about the police. What about the police? Police can certainly deny reporters access to a crime scene, and people who violate these orders can be charged with trespassing. Now, obviously, you know, if there's I'm sure a, that a crime scene, you can't, just can't have reporters walking in they can contaminating. They trespassing? 
Yeah, like if if the crime scene tape is up. Yeah, I would think you could be charged with way more than that. Well, trespassing, I guess, is enough. Like contamination of a crime scene or a tampering with evidence, and well, and that's why they want to keep them out because if they're walking through the crime scene, well, yeah, I totally agree. They should be out, but I'm Um, surprised that's all they get. Police can also restrict access. Uh, during tactical situations because you can't, just can't have the bad guy watching TV and see that the police are sneaking up behind them. Yeah. And so, like, sometimes you'll see the, the freeway chases in Los Angeles. So the newspaper hey, helicopters have to, have to operate, you know, at a certain We left that one off elevation. The list. Yeah, at a certain yeah. elevation to where the police operate down at a lower elevation. Yeah. Yeah. Social media. What role is social media playing in this? We, we've kind of talked about it. We all have cameras. Yeah. It, news channels encourage you to send the videos in. That's right. Because we're all out there. We all have the cameras. So if you see something happening. And we're working for free. See something, say something, right? Yeah. So where does the United States stand in regards to freedom of the press? In 2018, the United States ranked 45th. In Reporters Without Borders Press Freedom Index. Now, let me explain this Freedom Press Index. This is an overall measure of freedom available to the press, including a range of factors, including government censorship, control over journalistic access, and whistleblower protections. The U.S. rankings fell from 20th in 2010 to 49th in 2015 before recovering to 41st in 2016. Freedom House, which is a U.S.-based independent watchdog organization, ranked the United States 30th out of 197 countries in freedom of the press in 2014. It report praised the constitutional protections given American journalists. They criticized authorities for placing undue limits on investigative reporting in the name of national security. Freedom House gives basically how they do this. They give countries a score out of 100, with zero being the most free and 100 the least free. The score is broken down into three separate weighted categories, legal out of 30, political out of 40, and economic out of 30. So the United States scored 6, 10, and 5 in those categories, respectively, uh, for a cumulative score of 21. That's pretty good. Okay, so here's where we get to our opinion. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah, freedom, freedom of the... Freedom of speech, freedom of the press going on right here. I definitely think we have to have freedom of the press. And like I said, our founding fathers thought so important of this that it is written into the Constitution. Number for one. Checks and balances. I mean, we hope that we it's have... The First Amendment. You know, when we... when I'll, I'll just talk about politics here. You know, we hope we have enough left-leaning folks, journalists to keep track mm-hmm. and report. And we hope we have enough right-leaning people, right-leaning people out there for that balance of power to Absolutely. keep things going on. I think, I personally, I think that's how it was intended because, I mean, they weren't dummies. They knew no. that people were going to have their political leanings, and so I think they were very, very wise to do this. But here's what I wish. News stations and opinion stations. I, uh, uh, should be two different things. Should be two different things. If you're going to report the news, report the news. If you're going to have talking heads giving their opinion of the news, get a different channel. I want to watch the news. Just report the news, report the facts. I can make up my own mind. Example, you know, if if we turn on the TV and it says the stock market fell 100 points today, I don't need then someone coming on and saying, well, um, the the stock market fell 100 points because politician X did this policy and that's why it fell 100 points. And then we have five talking heads arguing Mm -hmm. over it. You know, 
have we dumbed down so much as people that we can't think for ourselves right here? So I mean, I think if we watch local TV news, you see news. I mean, if you turn on the news yeah. at Channel 6, you're going to see what's reported. And I think at the local level, like you know, here in Dayton, mm-hmm. the politics stay out of it at the news level. But yeah. there's social media pages... A lot oh, of people yeah. a lot of people will argue that there is a lot of bias one way or the other. And I personally think they do a lot of baiting just to try to get the hits, you know, like I absolutely wh- yeah. There's a I would agree with that. The the reporting on the five, five thirty, six o'clock news it, I much think is pretty news. much just straight news. But yeah, if you go onto their web pages, there's a lot more, especially political local po- politicians even. And who writes these web pages? Oh, does, they need an editor. And does anybody edit other, it? That's um. They, it's that's like, in a whole other. We need to just I mean, stop that right they're, now. They're written like at the eighth grade level. Yeah. And ugh, they're, I cringe. They're, they're written I so cringe. terribly that it's out there. So I don't know. So, like I said, I don't need to be told what to think. I wish it was a rule. This channel will report news. Right. And if you want opinion, you flip over to this channel and okay. you listen to the opinions. If you can't make up your own mind on something and you need someone to tell you how to think, then go listen to that stuff. Right. But if you just want to watch the news, just give me a channel that just reports the news. I that, like that. that might make someone mad out there, but that's just how I or feel. Or it might cause somebody to want to go start a news channel that reports news. I doubt it. Eh. Maybe. You never know. All right. So that kind of wraps up our story on... The American media and how we reported this. So, Kim, anything out there that? Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, Best of Dayton nominations, official nominations come out here in about a week. Uh, on January, it's January sixth or seventh. So we will keep you posted. Other than that, check us out on social media: Facebook, Instagram, um, and you can email us at a lost hour at gmail dot com. Yep. And what else do we need to know here tonight before we sign out of here? I think that's it. I think that's it. So, from the beautiful studios in Beaver Creek, Ohio. Thanks for spending an hour of your life with us. 